Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Dave. And we're the hosts of the Chasing Tomorrow podcast, where we bring you stories that delve into the science and spirit behind intriguing people doing extraordinary things. Welcome to the Chasing Tomorrow podcast. This week, it's episode 32. This week is going to be fun. This interview is with who I believe is the most intellectual, smartest ultra runner that I've ever run with. And a guy that has really outsmarted every other runner and all the younger runners as well, too, to being one of America's best ultra marathoners, Bob Hearn. Now, Bob Hearn is 55 years old and lives in Porto, uh, Portolo uh, Valley. He's run Badwater 135, the Spartathlon many times, I think three or, or four times. Three times. Three times, perfect. And uh, he specializes in 24-hour, 48-hour, and is dabbling now in further distances, six days. I want to talk to him more about that. Uh, his personal best in 24 hours is 154 miles, and that placed him on the American 24-hour World Championships team, which is incredible. Um, well, actually, actually I, I have not yet ever made the team. I was an alternate, actually, the last, okay. Okay. last two times. But <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. But what's really interesting about Bob and uh, is that he is a, he got his PhD from MIT and working with artificial intelligence with an emphasis on behavior-based robotics. And where I'm going to ask him more about that because I think a lot of that transition between his cerebral abilities and then the rest of us really puts him in a, in a, in a place all onto his own. Um, now, Bob also has a fasc fascination with puzzles and game theory. And if anybody is out there and wants to read in a spectacular in-depth blog that I just also found is, is maybe a little bit behind date, it's uh, bobhearn.blogspot.com. So welcome to the uh, Chasing Tomorrow podcast, Bob. Thank you. It's well, to be here. yeah, awesome, Bob. You know, <clears throat> as I understand it, you didn't sort of dabble in ultra running until later in life. But we do like to sort of get an early view of our guests. Mm -hmm, Talk sure. a little bit about, you know, were you a runner in high school? Were you fast, competitive, none of the above? Uh, so tell us the journey before sort of the awakening. Uh, we'd love to hear that. Yeah, I, no, I was not athletic at all. I didn't run in high school. The closest thing would be marching band. Um, and, uh, I tried, I tried to start running, um, in college when I met, um, right before my freshman year, I met my, my, uh, future wife and, uh, she was a runner and I sort of tried to start running to impress her, but it, it didn't stick <laughs> and over the years. I would occasionally try to start running for health and fitness, but it was just too boring to do that. So it wasn't until uh, much later until, um, 2004 when I was 38 and uh, we moved to Vancouver and uh, I got talked somehow into joining this team entry for the Vancouver Sunrun, a big 10K. I never run that far. And I realized that, um, you know, I, I wanted to pull my weight. So I was looking at training plans and I realized, oh, actually, if I have a training plan to follow and a goal to work towards, all of a sudden running is, is fun. And I lived right next to Pacific Spirit Park. So beautiful trails to run there. And um, so I got sucked in and the 10K went well. And then I thought, oh, well, you know, I've already run like 12 miles in training. Maybe I can do a half marathon. And that went well. And then I got my sights set on Boston. And so I found, you know, bought Pitzinger's Advanced Marathoning and 
uh, once once I got kind of hooked, um, yeah, I I was hooked, and I got into marathon maniacs, ran lots and lots of marathons uh, for several years, and did my first ultra in two thousand eight, and um, since then gradually have shifted more to ultras. I really I really don't run marathons anymore. I'm not I'm not fast enough to be competitive there, but I realized you know the longer I go, the more competitive I am. Mm-hmm. And so what I, what I heard there Bob, was that you're really interested in the process. Is, is so is is that one is that one of the things that really interests you about about running and, and especially now about ultra marathons? It is. Um, you know, thinking about the process, I can leverage some of my some of my sort of analytical skills. But I, you know, the other thing that appeals to me is that running is really a very different thing than anything I've ever done before. It's a, it's a way to use my body and my brain in a fundamentally different way and sort of connect directly and engage with the world and use my mind in the not strictly logical way. You know, if you're running a race, you have to sort of use metal tricks and metal judo and keep your head in the right place. It's not really the same thing as the kind of problem solving that computer programming is. So it's, it's a mix there of using my skills and finding, finding new areas that are interesting. Yeah, I always like to just go back and touch a little bit on that, that marathon to ultra marathon transition. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's a bunch of us. That, um, I became very curious as well. You know, I had done probably not as many as you. I did maybe 35 road marathons and I figured it out. You know, I knew uh-huh. what that was. And then I was curious because those ultra runners just sort of looked fun. Like they looked yeah. different. They didn't, they didn't have, you know, the tight pants and the nice tank tops. They just were like out and they're very supportive. It was like every time you met one, they were like, oh yeah, come out and be with us. Was it the community that appealed to you or just pushing yourself harder to go longer? Well, I wasn't even aware of the community at first. I was, I was into marathons where it was at and I was you know, in Marathon Maniacs, I was trying to get more Maniac stars. So I was doing lots of Maniac mar- marathons close together. And the first time I did two in one weekend, um, a friend of mine said, well, if you can do that, you can do a 50 miler. It's not any harder. It's probably right. easier. So come mm-hmm. do this White River 50 with me. And um, I looked at, you know, it's elevation profile. It's got like 8,000 feet of gain. I'm like, but that's not, how can anybody do that? But I got suckered in and I did it. It just about killed me. And so I, I didn't even know there really was such a thing, you know. Yeah. Um, I didn't know anything about the ultra running community, but gradually I, I got more exposed to it. And yeah, definitely the community appealed to me. Um, it's, it's a very different sort of feel, very supportive. And um, yeah. The one yeah, more point I'd ahead. make on that. Sorry, Bob. Uh, Dave. Go ahead, Go ahead Joe. I can really remember the first time I heard someone tell me they ran 100 miles. And I was like, that's not really possible. Like this intellectual gap is so big then you go and do a hundred and when you tell people you don't understand their reaction even though you went through it it's like Mm -hmm. well but yeah i did it like did you you ever feel that like it's such a weird thing to have seen it on one side you think you'd connect better with how crazy that sounds to people yeah that's all relative i mean i I remember when i was in mit we lived in newton um like a block from the boston marathon course and Mm. we would go and watch the boston marathon every year and it was incomprehensible to me that anybody could run 26 miles, right. you know, and then mm-hmm. little did I realize I, you know, I've now run Boston like 13 times, I think. And now marathons are way too short to be fun and interesting. They're just like, <laughs> oh, you have to run so hard and so fast doing a marathon. Why would anybody want to do that? 
it's all it's all just relative to what you're used to. Yeah, yeah. it's amazing. And would you also say that Bob, maybe maybe it's since you know now it's that you live in the environment and you and you've done the analysis on mm -hmm. it because you know really ultimately I mean the human body is meant to do this we we can yeah, do this absolutely um, yeah. and now now you you've believed your own story you've drank your own Kool Aid but yeah. you've also done you've also you're you're the master of 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 analysis and so when you do the analysis you're like it, you know just like before in the in the you know before we we pressed record you were saying it's not rocket science and I said well yeah. to Joe and I it is but really it's it it I guess it it's not. You know, you say I do the research and I do the science. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, how for, for many years, my philosophy was even pace everything. And that's not that's not rocket science. And it's not um, who knows whether that's the best strategy. I sort of changed my attitude in the last couple of years and I'm trying other things. But, yeah, you know, before before I run a 24 hour, I'll make a spreadsheet and um, I'll put some numbers in and some paces and I'll play with different things. But it, it boils down to thinking that I want to run close to even. And all that means is that I'm doing a little bit more homework than most other people are who think that if they want to go out and run by feel, you know, don't you realize an hour in that you're like on world record pace. And um, whereas, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, I know that I have to run, you know, um, two fifteen laps or whatever to get the, the goal that I want to reach. And I don't see any point starting faster than that. Um, I've changed my attitude on that a little bit, but you know, it's not, it's not rocket science to run even splits. It, you just have to do a little bit of math and figure out what your splits are supposed to be and then have the discipline to stick to them. And most people don't do one or the other of those things. For our listeners, let's talk a little bit about what that means because they may be listening and not know what an even split is. Well, um, sorry. No, not at all. Um, oh, no, no problem. Yeah, Bob's a wanted man. Everybody, everybody's calling him. Yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, that just maybe we'll need to edit this. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we can ask that question again. How about that, Joe? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, why don't, why don't we go ahead there? And, yeah. yeah. So, Bob, you know, for our listeners who might not be completely up to speed on this idea of even splits. Can you describe that a little bit to the listener? Well, I mean, the basic idea behind even splits, if you're thinking about a marathon, that means run the first half in the same time that you run the second half. You don't, you don't um, slow down. Most people slow down, meaning that they start faster than they finish. Sometimes you can run negative splits. I used to like to run my marathons with a slight negative split. Um, I always thought when I was doing that, thinking about longer races that, oh, you know, you get to the ultra marathon world, there's no way you can run even splits. You just can't do that. And that's the way that most people think now. And maybe they're right. I mean, you can, you can run even splits for longer races. Um, there's a question of, you know, is that the best strategy? Anybody can run an even split if they split, if they start slow enough, you know, you hear right. people say it's not possible to run a 24 hour race with even splits. You're going to be totally beat up at the end. And it's like, well, no, I mean, you could walk the whole thing and then you're going to get an even split. But the question is, how fast can you go and hold an even split? And what does that performance look like compared to a more traditional performance where you start running what feels like a very easy pace? But if you do the math, you realize, oh, my God, for a 24 hour, I'm like on world record pace. You know, is that smart? Well, it, maybe it's smart if you're somebody who's going to set a world record. Um, 
but for most of us, I don't, I don't think it is. No, and is, is there right now uh, amongst the ultra running community and, or, or, or even yourself, are you building a program where there, there's a perfect formula? I mean, I look at, take Giannis Kuros no. with his 24 hour pacing and six day pacing. I mean, the guy goes out like a lightning beam and now he, yeah. he, can, he, can, he can hold on to a reasonable pace at the end. Which I mean, reasonable for when I say that it's still lightning fast for you and I, but um, but then you take a look at Zach Bitter and 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 his hundred mile uh, world record and and he he ran a negative split on that I believe I, I believe he did, and so oh, okay. is is there a perfect um, is is there is there a perfect formula? I don't think so. I mean, that's been an obsession of mine for years. Mm-hmm. Um, to try to understand that. And I've read, you know, innumerable physiology texts and muscle function and you name it. And I've made numerical computer models simulating what happens to muscles over time during a race to try to find an optimum. And uh, it's funny, up until um, maybe a year and a half ago when we, you, you and I, Dave, did the six days in the dome. Right. I think maybe up until then, I sort of had in my head just this sort of, very simple logical argument that even pacing is always going to be close to optimal because, you know, like earlier that year, I, I had run uh, the D3 24 hour um, trying to secure my spot on the 24 hour team and I, which for which I needed 155 miles. I'd run 154, but there were two guys just ahead of me and I had to run 155. And I, I was doing it bang on even. And I do, I do a run walk strategy in 24 hours. So I would like run for six laps and then walk for a minute. And um, that's just a little trick that helps you keep you slow enough early on without having to run at a, at a pace that is just not efficient. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I, I was solid through like 22 hours, bang on. And then I just fell apart. I couldn't hold it anymore. And it was a dramatic collapse. And uh, you know, I ran 150, which is a good number for a 24 hour, especially if you're 50, 354 yeah. but um, it, it wasn't enough to make the team and after that you know I generally do analysis and I post my pace charts on Facebook and stuff and you can see this chart it's like there's a straight line for 22 hours and then it goes zero. <laughs> and people ask me well you know don't you think you should have started a little bit faster and I look at that chart, chart and I say are you kidding me look what happened I couldn't even hold that <laughs> pace for 22 hours if I started faster of course I'm going to blow up sooner Mm-hmm. And to me, that logic had sort of seemed irrefutable, but I realized that, you know, it's very different to say, you know, maybe, you know, you have to actually do the math and do the analysis and say, what if I start a little bit faster, but I gradually slow down throughout the race? Mm-hmm. Intuitively, I would have thought, you know, under any reasonable model of um, accumulation of muscle damage or fatigue or whatever you want to call it, uh, that's going to be inferior to holding a steady pace just because it seems more efficient to always run at the same effort and not, you know, if you go a little faster than what you can sustain, you're accumulating damage at a greater rate. Um, that just seemed obvious to me. Finally, I sat down to actually do some modeling, you know, and I figured any reasonable model I come up with, this is what it's going to say. And it was more of the opposite. Any reasonable model I came up with said, no, you want to start faster and slow down. That's going to be worth a lot more. You know, I, I made the simplest model that I came up with, which is simply that muscle damage accumulates proportional to the effort that you are using your muscles at, um, basically suggested that if I could run 154 miles at even pacing in a 24 hour, 
if I start significantly faster, I should be able to run 162. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what the hell? There's, there's, that, that's crazy. And mm -hmm. so it opened my eyes and I really honestly just about given up on 24 hour because I tried for years to make the 24 hour team and always come up just short. And I thought, I'm not getting any younger. I'm running races. I'm executing perfectly and my body just isn't going to go any farther. But that reawakened my interest in pacing strategies and, uh, and 24 hour. And um, the, the frustrating thing is talking about the modeling, you know, there's just not enough data. You don't know enough about how muscle fatigue works. And I can right. change one parameter in a model and get entirely different answers as to what the optimal mm -hmm. pacing strategy should be. So that's a little disconcerting. But it means that there's more, you know, I did, I did an interview on Ultra Runner podcast a couple of years ago that he called um, Bob Hearn and the science of pacing or something like that. And now, you know, I, I would say there's definitely more in art pacing. You have to use logic and reason, but you have to balance that with your own experience and intuition that, that comes much more slowly as you, as you learn over years. Mm -hmm. Well, and Bob as well, too, like, you know, pacing strategies and, and, and even splits and negative splits and positive splits, I think that, you know, just based upon experience, you know, they change over marathoning, you know, into 100 mile racing to, you know, 24 hour racing, which is, you know, for, you know, top runners, 150 to 165 miles or 170 miles. Um, but I think that overall, you know, it kind of gets all thrown out the window when you start going into six days. You know, can you tell us a little bit more about that when it comes to your experiences uh, with, with yep. six day racing so far? Well, I've done, I've done two six-day races. I did the EMU um, in Hungary in 2018 and then the six days in the Dome last year. And the only reason I did that was I'd run a 48-hour um, with Joe Fijis, who has the six-day American record, mm -hmm. um, 606 miles, which is also the, the best six-day anybody in the world has run since, I think, 2007, if I remember Incredible. correctly. Absolutely. And after I did this um, 48 and I set an American age group record there, Joe came up to me and said, Bob, you really need to do six day because you can take down my record and you might even be able to challenge Giannis Kuros. <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? I'm not Giannis Kuros, <laughs> but it was enough for me to start playing with numbers in a spreadsheet. And on paper, 600, 630 miles in six days doesn't seem at all unreasonable. It's like if I can run 150 in 24 hours, what's the big deal about running 100 miles a day for six exactly. days? Exactly. Okay. Um, and, you know, so I spent a lot of time with a spreadsheet playing with the numbers. And, and the fun thing about when you move up to multi-day, of course, is you have to factor in sleep strategy. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole new variable to play with. Do you sleep in one block per day or multiple blocks? And do you sleep a lot and run faster? Do you sleep very little and run slower? And so it became a lot, you know, it became a very fun intellectual puzzle, just mapping out the possibilities. And I got sucked into this trap that, you know, you think you're accomplishing something when you're sitting there with a spreadsheet and you're praying with numbers and you play with the numbers until everything comes out nicely and looks good. It's like, Oh, yeah. I just solved this. I figured out how to run a world record. And then right. you get on, you actually try to do it. Well, that's, that's another matter. Absolutely. <laughs> and, um, yeah. but you know, so the, the, when I ran EMU, the, the, the one in Hungary, um, I did go out with a pacing plan for the world record because uh, I would have zero shot at any other world record in running. Anything shorter uh, would be too fast, yeah. Yeah. unquestionably. Six day was, you know, very likely out of reach, but on paper it, it was a shot. So why not mm -hmm. try? And um, 
I blew up after uh, two and a half days. I had a tendon injury and I had, had to pull out. Um, so I got, I thought I'd get a little smarter when I ran six days in the dome. I thought, well, you know, I want to leave myself the shot still now that I have more experience and I know what went wrong and I worked on some things. I still want to leave my shot at that world record, especially because six days in the dome is flat, it's climate controlled, it's the optimal, theoretically optimal conditions. Um, but I'm not going to be greedy. I'm going to go out and try to run even splits for the American record, 606, which already is obviously greedy. Um, really, the goal that I had in mind was the age group American record, the over 50 American record, which was Joe's, I think, 551 miles. Um, I would have been happy with that, but I thought, okay, if I start, if I run 101 miles a day and I can hold that, that's 606. But if I can, add, if I feel good and I add one mile every day, and then the last day I don't sleep and I power through on caffeine, then that will get me the world record. So that's a, a very extreme negative split, and. Um, that did not work. <laughs> you know, I ran 101 the first day and 102 the second day. And by the third day, I was having some injury issues. And I ran, you know, I was just over 300 after three days. And I hung on, I ran 530, which um, is a very solid six day race. Um, mm -hmm. Joe stayed two miles ahead of me the whole way. But I came away with that with this very, that was, that was sort of an aha moment for me during that race because. By about the, the fifth day, I wasn't trying to run fast anymore. I had this, this calf, this gastroc injury, um, and that made me do a lot of walking. Um, mm -hmm. But when, you know, I was icing it and when I could work through the pain, I could try to run some more. But then by about the fifth day, when I would try to run even at a super slow pace, it was feeling incredibly tough aerobically. Like I was trying to run at 5K pace just to run, you know, like 11 minute mile. And I was running or walking next to Ray Qualovitz and I'm saying, Ray, what the hell's going on here? All these other people are still running. Um, I can't even run, you know, 11 minute miles. He said, Bob, you got 400 miles on your legs already. You've got, mm -hmm. and these other people don't. And that means you got, you know, like only half your muscle fibers are working. And that means they need twice as much oxygen to do the normal load. I'm like, oh my God. And I suddenly realized what an idiot I had been because I, I've had this idea, or I had had this idea that um, to run these really long races, you don't need a lot of aerobic fitness. Mm. You know, I thought as a three hour marathoner, I can run 160 miles in a 24 hour. I have the, this aerobic capacity to do that because I never have to run faster than a nine, a nine minute mile and mm -hmm. even easier for six day. You know, if I can average, I don't know what it is, but you're not, you're not ever running nine minute miles in a six day. Most of us, mm -hmm. if we're not, crazy you know mm -hmm. i was doing uh, yeah i don't remember what the numbers are but yeah when i was walking i was doing sub 14 so i was um yeah anyway my thought was i want enough aerobic capacity to where i it is an extremely comfortable aerobic effort to run the pace that i want to hold from start to finish and i don't want any more because mm -hmm. why waste training effort accumulating speed that i'm never going to use and moreover you know muscles by weight are about one third mitochondria and capillaries. And mm -hmm. if I build that big an engine, that's just so much dead weight and mm -hmm. dead training time and dead training stress on my body that's not gonna serve me. But mm -hmm. once Ray told me that one simple statement, I, re I just realized what an idiot I'd been because after four or five days of running, the, the muscle fibers that are still running need that excess 
um, oxygen delivery and mm-hmm. ability to use oxygen to do anything. So I do need that extra capacity late in the race. And that, that again, changed everything for me. That's, I, that's sort of when I sat down to start doing this actual modeling and, and changing my training and pacing philosophy. So then for the, for the listeners, so what we're saying is that the fatigue, as we would sort of generally define the word, was building up at such a level that it was more effort to be able to maintain the speed. You couldn't overcome the fatigue because the muscles were not recovering because there was no recovery yeah. time. Yeah. And therefore, the amount of system you had to perform with was reducing at some yes sort of maybe even accelerating rate over time. Exactly. So, so that it was impossible in, we don't like that word, right? But it was increasingly uh, evident that you wouldn't be able to, without that extra energy, which was why you're breathing so hard, be able to try and move this thing that really didn't have the capability because it needed to go into a recovery mode to then be able to yep. re- mm-hmm. reset itself. Mm-hmm. And my thinking at the time was that there was no chance for that recovery because I was thinking in terms of cumulative physical muscle damage, microtrauma. Um, and when, you know, I had that conversation with Ray, I explained to my crew what's going on and they were not at all thrilled <laughs> to hear me sort of come to this conclusion that it's impossible for me to run for the rest of the mm-hmm. race. Um, yeah. It's a bad, bad timing to come up with that <laughs> conclusion. Of course. Yeah. Right. So and now I think, yeah, probably, you know, fatigue is so complicated. I think now looking at the numbers, um, and doing more analysis, more it's what they call long-lasting fatigue. You know, it's more mm-hmm. metabolic fatigue than actual muscle damage. Is probably what's going on at that, at that point. But it's it's really complicated. Oh, and, and, and the long and the metabolic fatigue. You know, sometimes you can recover by walking. Sometimes you can recover by a few hours sleep. But the, you know, there's this so-called long-lasting fatigue that can take days or weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. And I I, I agree, Bob. I think um, you know a lot can be learned by by looking at history and and Giannis Kuros, the the world's greatest multi-day runner ever um he did a lot of speed work you know he he developed an incredible aerobic capacity and you see a lot of like the the world's best 100 mile runners now and they're doing track work uh they're doing 400 meter repeats and you know five years ago I was scratching my head saying why would you ever do that and now I've come to realize that, you know, like for me, this, this upcoming summer, I would love to run across the country and, and you know, across Canada in record time. And that's over hundred kilometers a day, every day. And you, you, but the pace is so slow, but yet right now I'm doing a tremendous amount of speed work to be able to drive that yeah. aerobic capacity. Yeah. Cause that's, I, I have a feeling I'm going to really be relying upon that on the back half of, of the yeah. country. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I, you know, it might be different, because the question is, what is your steady state, right? You know, maybe if your steady state without, I was not running steady state. I was accumulating fatigue and accumulating damage. And I think when you run across the country, by the time you finish, you're going to be at a steady state where you're recovering. You're not accumulating fatigue, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're recovering at whatever fatigue you in, in, incur over any given day. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, I don't know. No, I think it's true. I think that it is a recovery game. And, you know, if you're running for 12 hours or you're running for 14 hours, can you recover within that 10 to 12 hour period of time in between and, and, and recovery becomes, you know, everything. And I would love to take this conversation offline with you, of course. I think, I think listening to you, Bob, you know, it makes us all realize that we know nothing. And, you know, I, I know nothing either. It's just, I know 
<laughs> yeah, I thought harder about it and I realized more deeply that I know nothing. Well, no, well yeah, it's not the truth. You have a different intuitive sense now, though, of where the risk factors are. Mm-hmm. We, the issue is yeah. we can't control for them. That's the part mm-hmm. that's hard, right? You cannot see how the system's operating and yeah. have that data in real time that would say to you, oh, by the way, the muscle's fatiguing faster than you wanted because you didn't eat the right foods and yeah. the weather was different and, and or mm-hmm. whatever the reason, right? We don't have the visibility. And so right. sometimes we're surprised by our performance because we don't, realize that well maybe our training was better or wasn't but you know, like we can be surprised upwards go faster and downward go slower mm-hmm. uh but there is there are some physical limitations you know the iron cowboy the guy who did the 50 iron man in 50 days he said that there were probably at most 10 more days he could have gone before he would have actually been laid out like he wouldn't yeah. have been able to move again so he could see that he was actually literally falling apart as it went along like up to 30 and then even up to 40 it was okay it was in those last 10 where the body itself is it's almost like you know when they do a structural test on metal and you start to see where the break point is and you can keep bending and bending and bending but there is that point where those molecules don't hold together anymore Mm -hmm. we see that and i think that's part of what what dave's at least in my opinion what dave is practicing to do is to have enough spare capacity so that to your point, Bob, he is actually not declining day after day. Mm-hmm. He's never gone yeah. into the depth that yes. happens in the sixth day. And so, yeah. yeah, but if he was doing a hundred miles a day, he would then be going into that spare capacity. He wouldn't have enough buffer. And yeah. that's the piece that we'll all sort of that try and figure out. Yeah. So, uh, so now, now that you've sort of got this insight, does it make you more curious about doing these races and trying different strategies? Absolutely. Ever since, um, I guess since the beginning of last year, I have, I no longer try to run even and mm-hmm. I'm playing with various declining, declining pacing strategies. And it's, you know, I had a good year of running. I had a lot of success last year. I still don't, I haven't found the optimal, um, certainly for 24 hour. I had a, a disappointing desert solstice, um, when I, I thought I had to go out on pace for 160 miles to make the team and I, I blew up and ran 137, 138 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I followed a very strict um, pacing program where I started running like two of five laps and then I was going to finish at like, I don't remember, 215 laps or something. But uh, And it was psychologically um, so rewarding to be able to realize that, oh, I, every so often I get to slow down a little. And instead of having in your, it's so deeply wired into my brain when I'm thinking about, you know, you're 10 hours into a, a 24 hour and that's, that's sort of about where it starts to get hard for me because it's getting dark and my body says, I want to go to bed. And you realize that the bulk of the race is still ahead of you and you're already tired and you're thinking, there's no way I can keep doing what I've been doing all day for another 14 hours. But now the psychology, I suddenly realized I don't have to do that. I get to slow down. Mm-hmm. And that, that was a, that was a welcome change for me. Uh, you know, I'm still playing with the parameters on how much faster I can start and, you know, what's the rate that I slow down at. And I, I exceeded my capacity at Desert Solstice, but I did what I thought I had to do. So I, I can't complain there, but earlier in the year, you know, my first race last year was, um, uh, 
flat, pretty flat hundred miler where I was going after that age group uh, American record, which I hit, and I had a declining declining pace strategy. Mm. And um, again, uh, when I did a forty eight hour, um, I already had the age group record there, but I, I beat that again by by not trying to run even splits. Um, Ball State five hundred K was a special case. Um, that's not. That's not a fixed time short loop thing where you can even think about pacing the same way. No, um, that was a very interesting experience. I'm assuming well. that you know, that experience you, you have to get to that certain town or the gas station where you can end up buying the the food and on and so forth at a specific time. Is that right? Well, it depends. You can run it crude or screwed, is what is the terminology. <laughs> yeah. And um, I wasn't I wasn't even going to run Ball State. I was going to run. Um, Actually, I was going to run EMU six day, and that got canceled. And then I was going to run six days in the dome, and that got canceled um, one week before Ball State. And um, so Ray K suggested, "Hey Bob, you might still want to think about Ball State one week in advance." And you know, Ball State always sells out instantly, so I didn't even think. But you know, so many people had canceled because of COVID that I turned out I actually could get in. Um, I didn't think there was any way I could assemble a crew, so I was going to have to do it screwed. And that was very intimidating. So I was doing all my homework, as you said, about figuring out, okay, I have to be at this town by this time because these stores are going to be open here. And I have to carry, think about what I'm going to carry everything on my back, which I don't normally do. Plus, I've been training for running, you know, uh, on the flat track in 55 degrees and not on hills in 95 degrees and humid. <laughs> mm -hmm. But then um, um, somebody stepped up and wanted to, to crew me, Regina Sui and, and Bill Page said, hey, I've done this race and we want to come crew you. It's like, um, okay. So if you, if you have crew then you don't have to worry about any of that. And, you know, they drive along, you know, not right. literally alongside you, but they meet you every so often with their car and give you ice and, and whatever. So I didn't have to worry about any of that. It was just, it was just um, pacing. And, you know, you think about when am I going to sleep in the heat of the day, you know, and mm -hmm. things like that, you still mm -hmm. have to deal with the planning on. That's pretty good to have uh, quite a few events in 2020. What was your 24-hour uh, record? What did you set it at? Uh, my best 24-hour was 154. That was at Desert Solstice uh, two years ago. The, the American, you said you set the American record last year. Was it last year? For uh, age um, Last year, I set actually five age group records. I set the 100-mile at, um, I ran a 14.44, which was a, just a three-minute record at um, the scurf 100 mile in south carolina um i ran the 48 hour at three days at the fair and then actually at desert solstice i just turned 55 so i set three new ones even though none of them were very strong um mm -hmm. a 15 28 mile split um was an age group track american record no, actually overall american 100 mile record for 55 and then also the 200k in the 24 hour um, but both of those numbers were were soft um, for the track. So I was well short of my actual goals. But any race, when you come away with three age group American records, you can't really no. say it was, a, it was a total failure. So, mm, absolutely. You know, well, so Bob, like what, 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 what intrigues you so much about records? Um, like I, I'm, I'm intrigued by, by, by records, Canadian records or world, world records or whatever, but you know, like I'm, I'm super curious to ask everyone, well, why, why records? Well, it's an X. I can't deny that there's some some ego there. You know, mm -hmm. I, you, you want to be a, a big fish. You know, I mean, admittedly, it is a small pond, but you know, you want to you want to do your best, and it's it's a line in the sand that mm -hmm. is a benchmark mm -hmm. that you didn't set that's out there. That is what the world or the country or whatever has put in front of you. Something to compare yourself against, and in practical terms, it's something to um, focus my training towards. 
You know, it gives yeah, me a goal, something concrete, numbers I can put in my spreadsheet. If I just go out and think I want to do my best, um, that's a lot harder for me. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. No, I agree. It's it's a recognizable number that yeah. that matters for one reason or another. Sometimes sometimes out there, you even even you find something else in that that matters. It's a split or, or something oh, rather. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. it matters so much to you at that moment, but yet yeah. it doesn't really you know, like like who cares. But yeah, no, there, it's 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 a number that matters. Yeah, I agree. I think this complexity of the systems, you know, whether it's the physical or the mental system, but but for sure neurotransmitters play a role and you know dopamine is a is a heck of a, an asset when leveraged properly and when yeah. you know that that's what's possible you know that kicks in in a better way than would otherwise otherwise it's not necessary Absolutely. you don't need yeah. a reward system to just go do a fun run for 50 miles you just go out and do, you can do it without your watch you know like if you knew where it was but but the rest of the time <clears throat> And I think it's actually good for us. I think it's part of the, the human system that's different than the rest of the species on the planet, which is this constant improvement. And, you know, we might as well use this resource to the best of its ability. I don't think any of us will ever get to whatever 100% is, right? Yeah. Complete optimization. Even when you yeah. crossed the finish line and thought that you got there, you still had something left. Uh, and it's a fun pursuit. I think that's part of, you know, what, but Dave and I love about the podcast is the people we get to meet who are all in their own way, sort of playing around with the same concepts and yeah, it's fun to try and understand why someone, and you know, there's always different reasons, but all that matters is we're all having a good time, living a life, doing some good stuff, like going out and running an ultra race is a, you know, we had more people doing that. We'd probably have a lot less stress and issues, right? <laughs> We loved when we talked to Courtney and uh, she said, my favorite part is that, you know, like you fall down an ultra race, everyone comes to help you. You know, if you're on the track running a race, they just like run right over you. <laughs> See you later. Yeah. So Good let's, let's Courtney's, evolve. Courtney's just amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Courtney's Courtney's lovely. Um, so I got to ask you, Bob, because I, I've, I've been also been told and we were talking earlier about running communities and things. I've I've also been told that you've you've run a race or two naked. You can can you uh, tell yeah. us more about that? Well, <laughs> where do I start? I guess it actually starts with um, this this race, Beta Breakers, in San Francisco. It's a it's a twelve k that's been going on for over a hundred years, and uh, we moved back to California, I think, in twenty twelve. And I knew that there's this group of people who like to run Beta Breakers naked, and that was. It looked, it looked fun. It was kind of scary. And I thought, I don't want to do that, but maybe, you know, maybe I'll run it in a G string and just sort of have fun. And so I saw, I, you know, I made this decision sort of at the last minute I had signed up for the race. I had, I had a seated start at the very front of, I don't know, 30,000, 50,000 people, however many. And it didn't occur to me that the people in the seated start are actually, um, those are serious runners. You know, I showed up and um, <laughs> Med Kofleski was there you know, and I shook his hand. I wished him luck at the Olympics. He was running that year. Um, but I was the only guy in the seated corral, um, you know, who was anything other than, you know, normal running attire. And I'm standing there in my G-string getting ready to go. <laughs> and, but it was so it was so fun and so liberating to just run through the streets mostly naked. And so I did I did that for a few years. And I started going to Burning Man. And at Burning Man, they have a 50K. Um, and... The 50K has an award for the first 
naked finisher. You have to do the whole thing naked, no G-string, no, you know, you can wear shoes, that's it. But a lot of people did it. And, you know, and there's a lot of nudity at Burning Man in the first place. It's, it's, it, there's no shame or judgment or, you know, it's just- It's Burning Man, yeah. It's Burning Man. And I, you know, running 50 miles in the, yeah, sorry, 50K in the desert at Burning Man naked it's just everybody should do that it's just a blast so yeah, i've done that i've done that um three times i guess yeah and that's, oh. that's a blast all right well that's the first on our show dave there we go uh, okay um, we're good to to try out new ideas here uh so <laughs> <laughs> so the cool part here is that you know uh you're in this you know, class of, you know, we know that ultra runners, you know, maybe not 21 year olds are the best at it. As we get older, we're sort of good at it. But then there's that point where, you know, some of our performance can decline as we get older, but you seem to be holding it together. What's your training like? You know, what do you, you know, do you have a pretty good training regimen? What do you got in miles in a week? Um, it's the last several years, you know, I've not essentially not done any speed work. Um, it's mostly roads, pretty flat, a lot of track. Um, I try to hit the track twice a week. Um, depends on what I'm training for. If I'm training for a track 24 hour or any, well, any fixed time race, really, I'm going to be doing a lot of track runs, working on my race pacing. Um, typically, you know, for the bulk of the training block, I'll be 70, 80 miles and I'll, I like to peak around 110, 120. Um, but it's all easy running. Um, mm -hmm. last year, you know, a year and a half, I've tried to incorporate a little bit more speed work. And I don't mean, you know, tempo really is as fast as I mean, just yeah. get something, my legs are com comfortable to something a little faster than I want to sustain rather than my old idea, just always being bang on what I want to sustain. Um, but I'm limited by, by ever since um, uh, seven years ago, I guess, I tore my left hamstring tendons and uh, I've always had tendon issues. Achilles, I've had some Achilles surgery. Um, I'm basically always limited by some tendon or other that keeps me from doing a lot of, a lot of even tempo work, you know, it, that will impact my volume if I try to do that. So really it's just a lot of slow miles. You know, every weekend I'll go to the track and do 20, 22, and midweek I'll go to the track and do 15, you know, and, and a lot of that will be working on, on my pacing for whatever I'm training for. And the rest of the week will typically be uh, doubles most days, just on roads and easy trails. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. And then when you're doing the track work, what's that kind of pacing that you're doing uh, when you do, say, 15 miles on the track? Are you doing the 205 pacing? Yeah. Round or? yeah. Sometimes I'll do like this block for before Desert Solstice. I tried to do, um, you know, sometimes I did some 155, some 150s for six or eight miles, um, but I don't think I did anything faster than that. Really, a lot of it. I would, you know, when I would go out, I, one thing I like to do close, to like a two weeks, week and a half before, before like a track, twenty four hours. I'll go for my last big day. I'll go and I'll do a twenty miler in the morning on the track, and then I'll go into another twenty miler in the evening. Um, just it's more of a mental thing and a confidence thing, just to say I know that even after I've done this, I can just I can always go out and I can bang out an easy twenty miles. Mm -hmm. um, if I can do that and I feel good after the second twenty miler, that's that gives me confidence going in. But yeah, so like this time I would actually, you know, the, the, by my, my 20 milers, I would start at 205 pace. And I, I actually, the other thing I've been doing the last couple of years is um, writing custom apps for my Garmin, which, which you can do. 
So I will put in my pacing plan into my Garmin so that every time I manually lap, it will say, okay, this next six lap track block is supposed to be a 1332 or whatever. And then, you know, whenever I manually lap, it's, oh, you're five seconds ahead, you're one minute behind, whatever. I'm always bang on what my plan is because, you know, I, I didn't do that for a while. And so when I, when I was making my planning spreadsheets, I would have, I would have to tweak the numbers to get it to where, well, this six lap block, do I want to do it in 14 minutes or in 1350, you know, 1350 is going to be harder to add up those 10 seconds in my head. And because if you, if you keep, like you say, I'm going to do six laps in 14 minutes and you manly lap your Garmin every six laps, then it's easy to see how far ahead or behind you are right? Because you can multiply by 14, just add 14 minutes, and it's always going to be a whole minute boundary. So I had, you know, lots of mental tricks I would use like that to keep me on my pacing before I suddenly realized, oh, I should just write an app for my Garmin, and it'll do all that for me. And lately, I've added some bells and whistles where I can, you know, change my pacing plan halfway through and say, well, 159 is not going to happen. What happens if I try to go 154, you know, and then I'll say, okay, now you want to be doing this according to whatever mm -hmm. I programmed in start with mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I, I love that bob I, I think it eliminates a lot of the emotion at least that's what i have a lot of the time emotion and ego drive a lot of runs and yep. you know if you could end up eliminating that by a pre-planned analysis then then why not but let's go back to analysis for a second because i yeah. i can't i can't i can't end this conversation without talking to you about what i think is is the coolest um you know, thing to come to ultra marathons in years. And, and you know exactly where I'm going to go with this. Um, and something that I think that you should be able to be the world's best at, because really it's, it's, it's simple analysis. Um, it really just is until, until, you know, it's easy until it's not, is what Lazarus Lake always says. What, what about backyard? So tell me, tell me what your, your thoughts are on backyard. And, and in 2021 at Biggs, are we going to see somebody go 100 hours? I doubt it. Not not in bigs, just because the course. I, I have, you've been there and I haven't, but I don't think that course is fast enough. A, from what I it's hear, it's a tough course. Yeah, it's a yeah. tough course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny. You know, Laz has wanted me to run bigs for years, and I was registered um, 2019. Um, I did not run it because I was not recovered from the dome. And um, I, you, I think, were the only person who was at both the Dome and Biggs who didn't blow up very early at Biggs. Probably well, I, blew, I, blew, I blew up really early at the Dome. <laughs> I don't so know if you, you remember. You were, I think I only ran two days and then I slept for four. So while right. I was and sleeping, everybody who ran all six there. days, they, they were toast by, by Biggs. Honestly, yeah. the thing for me is Spartathlon is my favorite race, and that always conflicts with Biggs. And I was not running Spartathlon that year um, because actually I thought I was going to be running 24 hour worlds and I wasn't, um, but it was going to be too close to, to uh, the dome anyway. And, uh, but you know, Laz, yeah, like I said, Laz has wanted me to run it for a while and he thinks I would do well at it. But mm -hmm. I, my initial take is, well, but you're already forcing everyone to only run, you know, four and a six miles every hour. That's their, it's a stupid trick that I have, you know, but um, there goes my advantage. Right? But, <laughs> I guess, you know, it's really a lot more complicated than that because it comes down to, do you run 55 minute laps, you know, and mm -hmm. recover as, as little as possible? Or do you run 40 minute laps and try to sleep 15 minutes? And my thought watching bigs for several years was why are these people, you know, imagine you're running a 24. So when you watch bigs, most of the people are out by 24 hours, right? Mm -hmm. Imagine you're running a 24 hour race. Would you ever consider 
running for 40 minutes and then sitting in your chair for 15. You just wouldn't do it. It's, it's insane. And yet most people who try to do that, they're out by 24 hours. And so I thought, well, right. obviously I'm going to start when I, when I do a backyard by running 55, 57 minute laps. And maybe when it's night and I'm on the road, then I'll like at the beginning of the night, I'll try to throw in a fast one and get a 15 minute nap. And then again, at the end, um, that seemed to make sense to me. Um, but you know, like I said, I didn't run bigs, but um, I did run one virtual race last year, the quarantine backyard. Thank you for, for setting that up. And um, I didn't have a good race. I had, um, it's funny because, you know, April in Bay Area, California, I should have had a weather advantage over everybody, but we mm -hmm. had a freak rainstorm. It was apocalyptic. And, you know, I was feeling sorry for myself because I had this total disastrous weather and I could see everyone else on Zoom. And some, some other people had, you know, Anna Carlson probably had it worse, but I had really horrible weather. Um, and I was stupid and I just like ran through, you know, continuously ran through the puddles and realized after 34 hours that I was getting trench foot and it was too late by then to, to, mm -hmm. to put care I needed. So I had to stop, but I'd already learned a lot about the format and I'd been through a lot of torture. Um, and I sort of come through to the other side to a good mental place. I went into it thinking I'd like to think I could do 48 hours. Um, I didn't, I didn't think I could do much more than that because honestly um, sleep deprivation is, is a really weak link for me mm -hmm. and not being able to ever sleep for more than like 10 minutes. That's, um, that's probably not going to work for me, mm -hmm. but I thought I could get through 48 hours and I think I could have, if I didn't have the weather, um, you know, I, I have to say, you know, I, I read Laz's old article in Ultra Running about bigs. Um, it was very fascinating, psychological experiment, and I was, you know, glued to the screen watching Harvey compete against Guillaume and mm -hmm. and Courtney, um, you know, compete against uh, Johan. Mm -hmm. um, but I, you know, Laz is going to hate me, and maybe you're going to hate me, but I think it's gotten a little bit too big for itself. You know, Laz, Laz, <laughs> well, Laz you must, Laz, Laz might even say that himself. Absolutely. Well, maybe, but you know, Laz sees it as like there's fixed time and there's fixed distance and there's backyard, and it's a third discipline. And mm -hmm. I guess that's sort of true, but I I liked it more when it was a quirky, you know, one-off Laz thing. I, I you know, it, it disturbs me a little bit to see it everywhere for for, for one reason because I think. Honestly, sleep deprivation, you know, people talk about the damage that ultra runners do to themselves. Um, well, even marathon runners do to themselves, but ultra runners, you know, people who run for hundreds of miles and multiple days um, are doing all this damage to their bodies and that can't be good for you. And I think mm -hmm. on the whole, it is good for you. My, maybe I'm wrong, but my sense is that it's a net positive balance, except sleep deprivation really leads to cumulative brain damage. There's a lot of mm -hmm. scientific evidence that that's the case, that if you don't sleep now, you're going to have Alzheimer's, you know, when you're 70, right? It's, mm -hmm. There's seems to be a very increased risk of that. And you don't see, you don't see the damage because it's slow accumulation and it doesn't hit you till much later. And, you know, in a six day race, um, you can sleep four or five hours a night and still run an awesome race. Mm -hmm. um, in a backyard, you know, what is the effect of, at most, you know, 10, well, typically none, and maybe 15 minutes of sleep for multiple days in a row. Mm -hmm. um, it's not something I honestly think is good for people. Maybe mm -hmm. I'm wrong. Um, 
And so it's not a format that really appeals to me from that perspective. And it's also not a format that I think I'm really strong at because I don't have good sleep deprivation mm -hmm. skills. Mm -hmm. It is something that psychologically, as I went through it um, last year, was very interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the metal ups and downs about, you know, the, the whole point that Laz came up with it with in the first place, you don't know how long the race is going to last. Mm -hmm. And you know, normally at least at bigs, you're running with a lot of other people and you can look at them and think, you can see people dropping off and gauge some sense of your odds of actually winning the race. It's harder when it's virtual and you're running your own course by yourself. But mm -hmm. nonetheless, you know, I wanted to get, I didn't, I thought I was going to sidestep that by giving myself a goal of 48 hours. Nonetheless, I got sucked into looking at the attrition rate, right? And thinking about you know, my wife was crewing me and I was telling her at the end of the first night, you know, I don't think I'm going to make it past 24 hours, which is insane. Running 100, 100 miles in 24 hours is nothing, you mm -hmm. know, if you're used to doing 150. But that format, and, and you know, when I run a 24-hour race, I don't sleep at all. But so what's the big deal, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? but, Absolutely. Um, and my course was not like Biggs. My course is easier than Biggs. So I set up in my garage. I had a cot um, where I could go and lie down and for, you know, five, 10 minutes. Um, the psychology is incredibly fascinating um mm -hmm. and i i think i'm going to have more, more fun watching it though last year was so interesting with the virtual format and seeing all the different you know how the, the two things that amazed me were um mexico my god you know mm -hmm. these mexican the tarahumana runners they had as far as i understand the toughest course of anybody yeah and they were i think the third country is is that right yeah um, and they still have three runners in yeah while yeah. most other countries had two right um, at that point they looked like the favorites and they yeah. had a hard much harder course than bigs and the belgians as i understand it had the easiest course and mm -hmm. so it's no surprise that they actually won and um, and they had strong runners there too so you know yeah, it, yes yeah Mm -hmm. but 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 i guess what i would say about pacing strategy is at bigs it seems very complicated but for the belgians on a flat course um mm -hmm. carl sabi ran a very smart race as i understand it maybe i'm wrong his strategy once he got into it was to run a lap in 40 minutes and sleep 15 minutes every single lap and yeah. if you have a flat course and you're a decent runner you can do that um, yeah. i don't think i don't think anybody can do that at bigs after 72 hours no, I think that the pace ends up dropping just myself in with my experience. I, you know, I, I went in with a strategy of, you know, the person who's going to win this race is the person who's going to have slept the most. And yeah. the further they go along 40, 50, 60, 70 hours in, um, if you can end up getting an extra three or four minutes of sleep than anybody yeah. else, because for me personally, I had six days in a dome, anxiety doesn't let me sleep. Like when yeah. I lie down and I know Bob Hearn is on the course and he's mowing me down, I would not sleep. But yet in a, in a bigs format and in, in a backyard format, you know, you get done a loop um, and, you know, that hour is going to start for everybody at the same time. So you, you might as well lie down and just close your eyes. If you fall yeah. asleep, great. If you don't fall asleep, that's fine. Um, so there's no anxiety. And I, I found that that was a significant difference. So, cool. it, there's so there's so much to play out there, isn't there? Isn't there, Bob? Yeah, yeah, there is. And I think that that what's fascinating the theme or the thread throughout this is the complexity back to mm -hmm. of the system and not fully understanding the things that are going on against us or for us, and trying to have a plan that can can overcome that. Like, so there are those days where the systems worked well, but we didn't actually know why, and sometimes they don't. Yeah. Um, you know, there's this old sort of trivia question um eating drinking sleeping 
which one will kill you first if you don't do them, mm -hmm. right? You know, and it's yeah. sleeping. You know, you yes. can make it five days and then you'll die. Like yeah. that system is the number one overrule. Like you can go two weeks without eating and you're going to be okay. Not mm -hmm. feeling great, but and drinking similarly. And so there is something to the sleep system that we can't conquer. Yeah. Like we just, like everything else, we can sort of manipulate our way through it. But that one, which is probably why that sleeping every hour does turns that thing off every time. Like, okay, that switch was turned off so you can keep going. But if you don't ever turn that switch off, you know, this system is going to come right back at you because it wants to do something. And it's a fascinating yeah. part of the exploration. And, yes. uh, and then it's that optimization in within that knowledge that'll sort of, you know, get you there. But uh, yeah, it, it is. Uh, I don't think anyone really fully understood as we started this ultra sport what we would find, like these kinds of mm. insights. And so it makes it fun, you know, why these new formats can come out and yes. uh, why something's hard versus easy and who can go do things. And imagine, you know, the next group that comes behind us who knew more about this and, you know, mm -hmm. it's getting faster. And, uh, you know, there's some of this, there's, what we would have called long races are getting so fast that they're crazy. Like, you know, yeah. 50 miler, hundred K people are like running at them like nothing you've ever seen. So, mm -hmm. so Bob, like you, tell us two things and then we'll, we'll get to wrap up with you. But one is, do you have a race plan for this year? What's uh, 21 look for you? Uh, I really don't. Um, it comes down to the biggest thing is, you know, 24 hour worlds is supposed to be in May in Romania. And I would imagine it hasn't been announced yet, but my guess would be that's going to be either canceled or more likely pushed back. And mm -hmm. if it's pushed back, that means theoretically I might have another chance to qualify and that would take priority. Um, and so I'm going to have, you know, everything sort of depends on that. Um, other than that, I'm registered for Spartathlon, my favorite race, which I've missed for the last two years. Um, I'm registered for Ball State again. I had, a, I had a really good Ball State last year, um, not going in specifically trained for it. And that makes, gives me some confidence that I could um, have a reasonable shot at the course record. Um, but honestly, um, six day is more important to me. I didn't, was not able to run a six day last year. I want to run one this year. And so it, it, I don't think there's probably going to be a way to fit in what I want to do this year. I, I, what I'm afraid of is that 24 hour worlds will get pushed back to the point where it conflicts with Spartath one. Yeah. And um, mm -hmm. I'm still going to have to take my best shot at making the 24 hour team. Cause that's been my top running goal for the last six years. And I've come up, right. you know, one year I was literally 300 feet short of making the team Another year I was one mile yeah. short. And, um, but you know, it, it also, it's going to kill me to miss Spartath one again um, for three years in a row. That's hands down my favorite race. So, I don't know. I'll, I'll, it's yeah. It's twenty-four hour worlds. It's Spartathlon, and then six day or or, or ball state or my or, oh. And also now that I turned um, fifty-five, I can think about age group world records that were out of reach before I was fifty-five. Um, mm -hmm. I was one mile short of the twelve-hour age group world record at Desert Solstice, and I could have had it if I'd been pacing for it. But I was pacing for making the twenty-four hour team. So mm -hmm. um, that's something to look at is to, is to run. Um, Run a fast hundred with a twelve with a twelve hour age group world record. Maybe, you know, I ran I ran fourteen forty four for hundred a year ago. That the age group um, hundred mile world record 
um, on the books is actually 1514, I believe. But the books have not been updated because there's a Brit who ran 1424. So can I go from a 1444 to a 1424? I might consider trying that. I've never really trained hard specifically for 100. Mm -hmm. um, so those are all possibilities. Yeah, you're going to have to go and do some more speed work. Yes. <laughs> Spend some time with Dave Proctor, and you can do that anytime you want. Yeah. So, like, I remember uh, at, the, at the dome, Dave, you were we were talking late in the dome. You were keeping me company, and <laughs> you were saying something about training. About you know, some days you just got to go out and you know do those long runs. You know, at seventeen minute five k pace. You know, because you got to do it. And I'm like, Dave, I've never run a seventeen minute five k <laughs> in my life. <laughs> we're in a different world here. Let's start oh, no. that today. Yeah. So the. <laughs> Our, our closing question always more broader than just this year's plan is, you know, what's your, like you've been on this data path, you've been on this ultra path, you know, if you were to tell our listeners, what's, you know, Bob Hearn's chasing tomorrow, your big thinking for what comes next. Honestly, something we haven't touched on is I, there's kind of a spiritual side of running mm -hmm. that is really only been more obvious to me as I started doing multi-days you know I've, I've been doing meditation lately reading about Buddhism um, and I've had these experiences during or after multi-days that are I would almost call enlightenment experiences and that in and of itself is you know enough to run the race let alone records or goals or winning or losing or anything just the, the sheer experience that results from you know continuous effort over multiple days and the sleep deprivation and the camaraderie and all that goes into it just puts your strips away so much from your mind that you're in this incredibly open clear space and um so that's really you know i think what is driving me going forwards you know i'd like i'd like to be able to still running age group build be still running age group records when i'm 80 you know like don winkley um because i'm not you know i started running at 38 i'm 55 so far, I've managed to run, you know, not just age graded, but actual PRs every year since then. Obviously, that's not going to continue for much longer. And there's going to be a motivational and, and um, emotional shift at that point. But if I can focus at that point on the more spiritual side and rewards and community rewards, which are related, maybe maybe that'll keep me going. Wow. Well, that's, that's beautiful. I, you know, with the Chasing Tomorrow podcast, you know, that's one of the things that Joe and I always say is that we're always trying to uncover the, the science and the spirit of, of why, you know, extraordinarily people are, are doing extraordinary things. And I think that, I, I think that you've topped out on the science and I think that you're just starting to uncover the spirit of, of all these things. So, you know, that's a beautiful way to, uh, to end this conversation, Bob, this has been an incredible hour um, you know, I've, I've gained so much from this. I'm going to end taking this conversation offline because I, I, I think I could, I could learn so much from a runner like yourself. And, uh, yeah, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart, uh, for, for spending this hour with us. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dave. Joe, it's, it's been a real pleasure and, and, uh, thanks for inviting me on. Yeah. Wish you the best this year and, uh, yeah. let's stay in touch and, uh, revisit this at the end of the year and see how some of these tactics and techniques and spirit made a difference for you. Okay. We'll do. Take care. Thanks, Bob. Dave, now that was wicked fun, huh? 
I know we all in the ultra world have this special level of respect and admiration for Bob. That combination of deep knowledge of our sport, his pacing theory, combined with his ability to run and run and run, it's just amazing. I do think it's hilarious that he ran in the Burning Man 50K. That is bold for sure. Not sure that's in my future, but well, we'll have to get Bob back on so we can dig more into how he's doing with his new pacing theory. I bet you we're going to hear some amazing results. Well, yeah, there you have it. That's a wrap for this week. As always, a shout out to our sponsor, Performance Tea. You can find them on www.performancetea.com. And they've given us a discount code for any of our listeners to get 20% off their purchase. Just use Chasing20 to get the discount. And if you have a topic or guest you'd like to see on the show, email us your ideas to info at chasingtomorrowpodcast.com. And a huge thanks to our listeners for coming with us on this journey and chasing tomorrow with us. Thanks very much.